Welcome back to Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. In this series of podcasts, we are highlighting the best presentations from the January 2020 San Francisco Digital Orthopedics Conference, otherwise known as DOCSF, presented in partnership with UCSF's Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and the November 2019 DOCSF Berlin Conference, presented in partnership with Frontiers Health. On this, episode five of season three, we bring you Kevin Bozik, MD, MBA, professor and chair of the Department of Surgery at the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas to discuss the opportunities for digital technologies in the inpatient setting. He is followed by Molly McCarthy, Chief Nursing Officer at Microsoft. She'll speak about Microsoft's efforts in healthcare and partnerships with traditional implant companies such as Stryker to solve real problems with virtual reality and other technologies. Then Sandra Schmidt, Assistant Medical Director Administrator for Perioperative Services at Kaiser Permanente, will lead the Q&A. Two world-class speakers and an experienced operating room director as moderator we got you covered. Let's join them on the DOCSF stage. Thanks, everybody, for having me. I am pleased to introduce a couple people that will be part of this next session. The first person is Dr. Kevin Bozik. He is the inaugural chair of surgery and periop at the Dell Medical School, UT Austin. Austin, yay, lovely town. He's nationally recognized leader in orthopedic surgery and value-based healthcare, payment and delivery models. He's actively involved in both regional and national health policy initiatives. He's the co-founder and former chair of the California Joint Replacement Registry, and he's a recipient of numerous awards, including the UCSF Exceptional Physician of the Year Award. So everyone, please welcome Dr. Kevin Bozik. Okay. Well, thank you, Sandra, and thanks to Steph for inviting me, although I have to say I was a little surprised to get this invitation as I'm definitely a digital immigrant, and everything I know about technology I learned from my 12-year-old daughter who's waiting for me downstairs and said, Dad, this is the most boring trip you've ever taken me on. So (laughs) with that said, Steph asked me, I, I have learned a bit from the School of Hard Knocks about execution as the chair of surgery at a large institution. So as Sandra mentioned, I'm the chair of surgery at the Dell Medical School. Those of you who haven't heard of it, we're the first medical school built on a tier one research campus in the United States in 50 years. We're probably going to be the last because there's only three left that don't have medical schools and none of them are interested in medical schools. We're the only medical school in the country that has the term health in our vision statement as opposed to health care. In fact, that's our vision statement, health. And our mission is to revolutionize how people get and stay healthy. And when you start from scratch and you have nothing, I mean, when I showed up in Austin, there were no buildings, there were no people, there were no operating rooms, there was nothing. You get to, as our dean likes to say, rethink everything. And so one of the things that we got to rethink is the role of the academic medical center in society. So we're in Austin, Texas, fastest growing city in the United States, 2 million people in the metropolitan area, 200 people a day moved to Austin, most of them from California. So you're building a brand new academic medical center. How many beds are you going to build? How many beds are you going to make that medical center? Just shout it out. There's some hospital people in the room. How many? hundred. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. So 
how many would we have built 20 years ago? Two million people in this city. 500-bed hospital? Anybody want to go higher? 1,500, right? That would be pretty typical. How about 200? We built a 200-bed hospital in the fastest-growing city in the United States. The hospital is less than two years old. Why? Because if you look around your hospital, there are a lot of things going on in the hospital that don't belong in the hospital, right? As hospital beds go from an asset to a liability, we decided to build small, and that puts a lot of pressure and a lot of forces us to be disciplined. We operate at about 120% census every day, which means we've got to be disciplined and we've got to be looking for things to take out of the hospital. Well, it also creates some challenges for me as chair of surgery. This is what our operating rooms look like every day, right? I've got people lined up behind me. When am I going to get my case on, right? So we were able to, with the, uh, one of my colleagues who gets all the credit for this project, I did nothing, Tony Emanuel, who's one of our faculty and is with U.S. Anesthesia Partners, who's our anesthesia, partnered with the McCombs uh, School of Business and our medical center to look at how are we going to solve this problem. We have 13 operating rooms, we have 211 beds, and we've got lots and lots of surgeons clamoring for OR space and time. So who in this room who's not a clinician or a surgeon knows what block time is? Somebody who's not, who's not a physician or a surgeon, tell me what block time is. What does it mean? For who? Okay. So who owns that block time? Yeah, that's spoken like a hospital ministry, right? Okay. So... That didn't show up, but basically block time is a way of scheduling time in the operating room, and it says that me, Dr. Bozik, has my block time every Tuesday from 6.30 in the morning till 3, and that's mine. Nobody can touch it unless I say they can. So what's not to like, right? As a surgeon, I get my block time, and it's mine. I can use it how I want. Well, the problem is, if you look at our average block time utilization, we're at about 80%, but if you look at our OR usage, which means if I have four hours of block time, I'm using 241% of that block time on average, right? So I don't actually need block time. I need OR time. That's the problem, right? Now add to that that we're a level one trauma center, and a level one trauma center has add-on cases every day, right? So we define add-on cases as cases that are scheduled within three days, and about 40% of our OR volume is add-on cases at a level one trauma center. And then on any given day, we have double-digit add-on cases just for that particular day. So we turned to Tony and said, Tony, how are we going to solve this problem? And he started by analyzing what's going on now, because as you know, surgeons, our motto is sometimes right, never in doubt. And so we have a lot of opinions about anecdotal evidence about how things are running in the operating room, but they're not always true. Then we used some modeling techniques and looked at how could we do this better. So there's two terms to know about this. One is primetime utilization, which is the utilization of the operating rooms between 7 a.m. and 3 p.m. Why is that important? Why is 7 a.m. and 3 p.m. important? There's lots of shifts. Why is that shift important? Because those people are paid to be there between 7 and 3, and they're never going away no matter what. After 3 and after 7 p.m., we can let people go home. Every day, people will be there from 7 to 3. So we want to maximize utilization between 7 and 3. And then there's block utilization, which is how much of the time that I was allocated, my 4 hours, 6 hours, 8 hours, did I utilize? Now, anybody familiar with bin packing theory? So basically, you've got these four surgeries that have to be scheduled. You've got three ORs. This is the way most operating rooms would do it. They would say, okay, this doctor does case one, two, and four, three different surgeons, and case three's got to wait until the first case is done. Well, what if you turned that on its head and said, we're going to fit these in the way we would fit bins into a suitcase. 
that's going to open up a whole another operating room. And this is where the execution part that uh, Stefano was talking about is, is going to get challenging, right? So this was our prime time utilization. So between, again, I showed you what block time utilization and usage was, but in those prime time hours, this is how, what percentage of our operating rooms were being used. And if we just added that bin packing theory, we could increase that substantially and get most of the cases done during prime time. So we, with the business school, developed some simulation models and looked at what would this look like if we played it out over a series of days, months, and years. And we found that we could accommodate a 50% increase in demand, 50% more cases, and still only use about two-thirds of our prime time utilization if, big if, if we could get people to cooperate and compromise during prime time. Again, this is all during prime time. Everybody's going to go home at 3 o'clock to get those cases done. So this is our high-tech app, okay? We developed an open table app, and I'll talk about why I think the concept of disruptive innovations later. We developed an open table app for OR scheduling, and this is what our OR scheduling looks like now for my schedule. You go on open table, and you can pick out, so this is what Tony Manuel, Chief Anesthesia, proposed. We're gonna get rid of block time, and we're gonna move to an open table scheduling system. So. How does anybody think that went over in terms of execution with the surgeons? So kind of like a lead balloon, right? Anybody here want to give up their OR time? This is kind of some of the responses we got early on. But that leads me to the execution part of the story that I'll finish with that, that Steph asked me to focus on. Some of you may be familiar with John Cotter, who was one of my professors when I was in business school at Harvard Business School, who's, who's talked about and taught me a lot about the principles for leading culture change. This is a cultural change, right? So we're saying people that have had these operating room blocks for beginning of time, I'm the chair of surgery, damn it, I want my own block time from seven to three because I'm a busy guy and I've got to go elsewhere at other times. So the first thing you got to do is establish a sense of urgency. We've got a problem. We've got more surgeons wanting to do more cases and we have a limited number of ORs because we built our hospital small. The first thing you got to do is form a powerful guiding coalition. Who's got to be in that coalition? If, well, if you're talking about operating room time, you got to have nursing, you got to have anesthesia, you got to have surgeons, you got to have SPD, you got to have operations people. You can't do this in a vacuum. If anesthesia and nursing went off and did this on their own, there's no way it would have been successful. You got to create a vision. What would it look like if we got all our cases done and everybody went home at three o'clock every day? Put aside the fact that you no longer have your quote unquote block time, but all of our cases are done at three o'clock and everybody gets to go home every day. You've got to communicate that. If the surgeons show up one day and they get a memo saying, by the way, your block time's been removed, that's not going to work, okay? You've got to be able to identify who are the people that are going to be most effective and communicate with them. You've got to empower others. This is not our project, Tony and mine, to force it down the throats of the other surgeons, anesthesiologists, and nurses. So you gotta, you gotta encourage others to take ownership and say, look, the first group we did this with in a pilot phase were our biggest champions. They were the ones that were sort of drew the short straw and after they went through it, they found that it was very effective. My job as chair of surgery is to remove the barriers, okay? So every time everybody says, this isn't gonna work because of this, well, let's go solve for this and try to remove that barrier. And then finally, you've got to understand and address resistance. It's not if you're going to get resistance. You're going to get resistance when you try to change things and when you try to change the culture. And you've got to be prepared for that and have a strategy for dealing with it. Plan and create short-term wins. This was not a, hey, we're going to make this work for everybody until the end of time. Let's do it for one service and let's do it for one month, okay? So we did a one-month pilot using this open table app 
And we found that our OR utilization during prime time went from 62 to 77%. That was our short-term win. Then we're able to use that to create more change, revise the strategy over time, talk this up. We went to our surgery council. Hey, guys, look, this is working great, right? Is anybody having a problem? All the people that originally said, no way, I'm not giving over, up my OR time. When we pushed them after a month and said, how's this working out? Nobody could think of anything bad that had happened to them yet. And keep that sense of urgency high. And finally, you've got to embed change in your culture. So ultimately, that is the definition of a learning health system. We want to be that learning health system that's continually learning from our own data and embedding that in our culture. So the last thing I'll say is we talk about disruptive versus sustaining innovations. And that's when I said I'm a digital immigrant. I am not chasing after this high-tech stuff. So Clayton Christensen in his work on the innovator's dilemma, he talked about the difference between sustaining technologies, which are constantly aimed at the highest end of the market, the most demanding customers. And that's mostly what we, what I get, what people are trying to sell me when they come to me and say, I want you to try this new digital health gadget. It's these sustaining innovations. Well, guess what? I'm the least demanding customer. I'm at the bottom of this scale. And the performance that most of us can absorb is somewhere between those. And what Christian's pointed out in his work, and he's studied this in 150 different industries, is once you surpass that, that upper line there, where you've surpassed the functionality that the vast majority of people can absorb, it creates an opportunity for a disruptive technology to come in. And that's a product or service that takes root initially in simple applications at the bottom of the market, and then relentlessly moves up market, eventually displacing established competitors. That's an open table app. This is not high-tech, sophisticated stuff. But guess what? Over time, that technology improves and eventually bumps off the incumbents. So one of the examples Christensen uses in his book is IBM. Our last speaker talked about IBM. In the early 90s, IBM was developing color copiers. Each year, they came out with a new version that had more colors, was faster, could fax, collate, copy, distribute your presentation for you to a tune of $5,000, okay? So most offices could afford one of these at most. If you're a small business, probably not. Well, once they passed that top line there, it created an opportunity for Hewlett-Packard to come in and create and develop a technology that is clearly inferior functionality. This device here has nowhere near the functionality of that device in the upper left. But guess what? For 300 bucks, it did what most of us needed, fax, copy, and print and we know the rest of the story. The same was true with, with airlines, right? So when Pan American Airlines was developing fancier first-class cabins and fancier first-class lounges in their airports, another small little airline came in named Southwest Airlines and said, we're gonna start with one plane and do small markets. And Pan Am said, you can have the Columbus to Hartford market, we're gonna stick with the Los Angeles to London market because that's where the money is. So they had clearly an inferior technology, the low end of the market, and we know what happened in that story. And so in Christensen's work and in, in, became interested in medicine, he's a diabetic and he's suffered with challenges, uh, health challenges his whole life. He wrote this book, Innovator's Prescription. He points out that every one of these disruptive innovations faces opposition, right? So in-office fluoroscopy was opposed by radiologists. An angioplasty, opposed by cardiac surgeons. Physician assistants and nurse anesthetists, opposed by primary care doctors and anesthesiologists. Ambulatory surgery centers and specialty hospitals, they're going to fail, they're unsafe, they're going to kill people. That's what the general hospital said. And chiropractors, podiatrists, and physical therapists, we as orthopedic surgeons are always trying to keep them in their box and tell them what they can and can't do. 
And that's not surprising because, as Christensen's pointed out in his work, powerful institutional forces fight simpler alternatives to expensive care because those alternatives threaten their very livelihood. And that's really, I think, what I'd like to leave you with is as we think about innovation, let's think about innovation that truly starts out cheaper, simpler, meeting the needs of the least demanding customers. So to summarize, and I think Stefano said this at the beginning, digital health solutions must address real world problems. We have a real world problem in our hospital, and that's managing our OR time for an increasing uh, number of faculty and surgeons. Think about disruptive innovations, not the high tech, the low tech stuff that's inferior functionality, starts by meeting the demands of the least demanding customers, and over time improves. As Steph said, execution is everything, right? That's what he's told us here. I mean, I presented a problem to you that's not about a fancy technology. It's about solving a problem. And I think that it's most important that we all remember that sustaining change takes real leadership. And I'm encouraged to see the number of leaders in this room on a Saturday afternoon during the 49ers football game in January. So thank you for the opportunity. I look forward to the discussion. It's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Molly McCarthy. She is the National Director uh, the U.S. Provider Industry and Chief Nurse Officer at Microsoft, where she oversees the strategies for the health system and provider market. She is a former PD and NICU nurse, NICU neonatal ICU, and with over 25 years of experience, she's passionate about connecting technology, clinicians, and patients to improve care delivery, safety, and outcomes. So please welcome Molly. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. I always love to come back to San Francisco. I spent a portion of my career in the Bay Area and actually made my transition from the clinical world to the technology world at a medical device company down in San Carlos when all my friends were working for dot-coms. So needless to say, when the dot-com bust happened in around 99, I was very excited because the traffic going from San Francisco down to San Carlos really lightened up. And as Sandra mentioned, I started my career as a NICU nurse. I worked in pediatric cardiology as well as pediatric kidney transplant. I actually worked with the kidney transplant team down at Lucille Salter Packard and that's actually how I got out here. I was telling Sandra that I, I came out here in the late, mid to late 90s with a car and a friend, and I left seven years later with a husband, a baby, and a moving van. So some great times that I had here. Today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what we're doing in health in Microsoft. And you heard from Gary earlier, told you a little bit about a cloud and the phone. And I actually came to Microsoft seven years ago when Steve Ballmer was the CEO. And at that time I was told I'd have to get a Nokia phone. Um, so I did. And I have to tell you that secretly I, I went out and got an iPhone as well because I really needed to, to do my banking and my kids' like practice schedules, and I couldn't do that on the Nokia phone. And within that year, actually, Satya Nadella came on, and he has truly transformed, I think, who who we are at Microsoft and, and what we're capable of doing. And I think this stems from the fact that he has driven us to work with the cloud technology as well as 
artificial intelligence and machine learning, but really because of the cultural shift that he's made within the organization. And this really stems, I think, from his own personal experience, specifically with the health system. He has a 23-year-old son with cerebral palsy who sustained a birth injury and is wheelchair-bound, and he also has a daughter with significant special needs. So he personally knows the health system, the challenges, the pitfalls. And so he, from the top down, has been very invested in, in health. And I, I have a slide, but I didn't share today just about what we're doing in, in terms of our investment in health. And it's really picked up over the past couple years. But really, with his leadership, we're moving forward. And over the past three years, we've created a vertical around healthcare. And you may not know, because I didn't know before I came to Microsoft, that we've actually been in healthcare for 30 years. And since I've been here, and when I came to Microsoft, I, I mentioned the Nokia phone. I, I also, I think Shauna talked about the hangover from the EMR implementations. That's really when I was coming to Microsoft, when I spoke I actually asked a group of individuals, you know, who in the audience has moved to the cloud? This is back in 2014. I think a couple people out of about 200 raised their hand. So we've been very focused on transitioning our customers beyond just, you know, that on-premise solution and even into a hybrid solution of creating that environment to the cloud because of the possibilities. The second thing that we've done and where we focus, and one of my favorite areas is really to work with the frontline healthcare workers, the physicians, the nurses, the PAs, the NPs, whoever that caregiver is, because they're the ones at the end of the day using the technology. And I will talk about a couple of different use cases that's maybe shiny and sexy and attractive, but I think when I look at healthcare, the communication and collaboration are still areas that are so fundamental in really moving healthcare forward. And then the final area which our Healthcare Next group works with is moving towards precision medicine. And our Healthcare Next, Next stands for new experience and technologies. And actually, just I thought I'd mention, that's headed up by Peter Lee. And if you're in town tomorrow night, Sunday night, we're having an event at the pawn shop. So if anyone's interested, you can talk to me after. But just a little bit more background on why we are where we are today, with specifically around artificial intelligence. So our customers, and we work in the healthcare industry with providers, with payers, with life sciences, with medical device companies. I know many of the, the companies that are out here today. And those companies, as well as healthcare organizations, they trust us with their data. They trust us with their personal information, their patient information. And within healthcare, obviously, that is so, so important. And because of that, we actually... And when I say we, it wasn't me. Harry Shum and Brad Smith wrote the book, The Future Computed. You can look that up. It's a 77-page ebook if you need some light reading. Um, really around the fundamental principles about artificial intelligence because this technology is so new and the uses are new. So you can just take a look at that in your spare time. But I did want to mention, I, I want to leave you with a couple of different use cases as you think about technology use within potentially your own work environment. And again, 
technology within healthcare is so important as we as we move forward, but I think it's also critical especially as a nurse, as a caregiver, that we maintain that human touch within that high-tech world. The first solution is a project we worked on with Stryker, and they are here today. I think they have got a room out there. Matt Powell, I, I ran into him earlier. Um, so if you want the details, you can, you can talk with them more specifically. But really, a couple of things. One, we worked with them as a company to look at how they manage the thousands of devices across the world in terms of performance and improvement. And through the Azure cloud and through the data and insights, we're able to, and, and through really the Internet of Things, bring that feedback and analytics to them so that they're able to really measure the performance and improve the quality of those devices. And that was really something they did internally and then took that information, developed something that was more customer-facing for hospitals in terms of smart equipment management. And so I'm going to play a quick video here. Stryker's mission is simple. Together with our customers, we're driven to make healthcare better. We hold 7,700 patents on medical technology products. From surgical and endoscopic products, to patient handling, and orthopedics, to neurotechnology and more. Innovation has always been at the forefront of what we do. In our partnership with Microsoft, our work in the Internet of Things space has been a big boost for us. Azure Cloud enables security and helps Stryker to connect to and have real-time data and access to performance data from those Stryker devices globally. Historically, when we'd have access to a product, it was only during a service event. What the Internet of Things has allowed us to do is to really capture data continuously. Having access to the data allows us to more quickly respond to the needs of our uh, products that are in the field to make those products better. And we see tremendous opportunity for a growing portfolio of devices. But potentially even more exciting is the opportunity to put this data in the hands of our customers. Smart equipment management is really device-derived data. What that means to our customers is an assistance with fleet management and predictive modeling. The data allows us to predict any maintenance issue before it really happens. This is something that we've never had in our industry before. For a typical biomed department that covers a large amount of medical devices, reducing downtime by even 1% can translate into significant cost savings. Stryker's use of real-time data allows us, the end user, the physician, the surgeon, to better control the usage of the actual instruments in the operating room. They are definitely one of the most innovative companies in the industry. They're taking advantage of the complete platform, the Azure Cloud, the IoT, machine learning. That real-time data enables Stryker to improve healthcare as an endpoint. Through our work with Microsoft, we're positioned to potentially transform healthcare in partnership with our customers. If we can tie clinical insights with some of the device insights and ultimately get to better patient outcomes, that's the holy grail. 
by harvesting this data from these connected products, turning that data into information and sharing it back with our customers, both clinical and non-clinical, we feel that we can positively affect patient outcomes. At the end of the day, we provide clinicians tools to provide better quality of life for more people, one product at a time. So again, Stryker is here. So if you want more information, I'm happy to talk with you and, and direct you with them. And I think what's paramount in the relationship and partnership with Stryker and, and other organizations is that we can't do it alone as Microsoft. We know that our providers and payers can't do it alone. And so we've seen a lot more collaboration and partnerships. I've seen a lot more over the past couple of years, just people wanting to work with us and the willingness. So it's been very rewarding. And there's one other example that I want to show to you guys, and that's really around the HoloLens. I don't know if you're familiar with the HoloLens. I like to describe it, uh, and you can see them wearing wearing it right there. And we're actually just releasing our second version, but it's a wearable computer. It's really a mixed reality device that's bringing in images as well as voice, et cetera, into the world. So you have your world in front of you as well as the world on the computer. Um, and this is a use case that we did at a hospital in Germany in partnership with two software vendors who created the software for the HoloLens, really around virtual surgery intelligence. And when I say that, what I mean is specific applications for patient education. So for example, if you have a patient who's going to undergo I don't know, a cardiac surgery. They could wear the HoloLens alongside the surgeon, whoever's doing that education, and run through the areas that might need you know, the attention, for example, like a valve replacement. Another area is in surgery planning. And then, of course, in surgery, and we'll see that in, in a couple minutes. And then I think one of the greatest uses that I've seen that we've worked on at Microsoft is really around education for medical students, for nursing students. We've done a lot with the Cleveland Clinic and Case Western Reserve University. So I just, I know we're running short on time, but I do want to share this other use case just so you can see how they're using it at this particular hospital. When we operate, plan operations, or inform patients about what we plan to do, it's important for them to be able to use their sensory organs, to be able to have a 3D perspective, a spatial perspective, to get an idea of what they've got. It took me six years of studying to be able to anatomically understand relatively complex connections. Then a patient comes along and I have to explain to them what they have in five minutes. Most patients feel overwhelmed. When I first wore the glasses, I was amazed and realized how much I'd missed out on. By using spatial representation, the patient can gain an insight into what it looks like and they can almost touch it. Virtual Surgery Intelligence, also called Evolving Hospital, is a platform that supports mixed reality applications used for various processes at the hospital. The project came about because we wanted to see CT images in 3D in the trauma department. One of the two important functions is the placement. 
we scan the patient using HoloLens and then the CT or MRI scan is displayed on the patient in 3D and with millimeter precision. The second function is natural rendering. This enables you to see a realistic looking CT or MRI image in front of you. Microsoft provides a secure cloud environment and services, such as artificial intelligence and hardware such as HoloLens with its mixed reality. Based on this, our partners like Apocular can develop solutions and provide medical care. The advantage of HoloLens is that it enables you to experience both the reality, the real state, the normal way, just as surgery is normally performed. The patient is there, but I'm getting the information without having to look away, without having to turn to face another screen. It's all in one. We're also able to deliver better quality with fewer complications, shorter operation times due to better surgery planning and less blood loss as we make smaller incisions due to better planning. This will have an impact which can be measured. Our vision is to make the impossible possible along with our partners. We want to improve patient care, increase efficiency, and make work easier for doctors and for all healthcare workers. Partners are important. Only on a team, only by cooperating can you get the desired results. And that's further development. Thank you. I'm going to skip this, but we, we did recently announce some work with Philips. I just wanted to say thank you so much. If you have any questions, I know we're going to chat here briefly. I will be here this afternoon, and I'm coming tomorrow to see Matt Wilpers, my favorite Peloton instructor, in the morning. So I'll be here then as well. So thank you guys so much, and I hope you enjoy the conference. Just a reminder to everyone, if you want to use the slide.com to submit any questions, you're welcome to do that. I'll start off. I'll kick off a few questions. So, Kevin, I'm just curious about your open table concept. In that model, we know that not every type of surgery needs the same access. So, for instance, a total joint patient might decide to have it in three or four weeks or after they get back from their African safari or their daughter's graduation, yet a cancer patient may need to have access within a week. So how did you mitigate balancing that with just an open table model? Yeah, so a great question, a couple of things. First of all, this kind of model won't work for every medical center. For instance, an ambulatory surgery center where everything is scheduled far in advance doesn't need this kind of flexibility. At a level one trauma center and then add in that we do a fairly significant amount of cancer surgery, you need to have this level of flexibility and you don't really want to get above 70, 75% OR utilization because then it gets really hard to schedule these cases that you're not, that you don't know about until three days prior. So that's why I said 40% of our volume is scheduled within three days of surgery and some of that are cancer biopsies and things like that. Once you do this kind of bin packing with this open table, you, you, it, it's incredible how much OR space is open now. We've doubled, doubled the number of cases that we've been able to do in the OR between seven and three since we started using this. So, 
Yeah, you might start your case at nine or you might start your case at 11, but everything gets done and most of it gets done before three o'clock. It's just, again, it's such a visceral thing for surgeons to think about giving up their block time. But if you can show them the data that actually you're not staying here till seven o'clock at night, you're not. The other problem with staying after three o'clock is you're doing a total hip replacement with a gynecology nurse. And that's something that nobody wants. So once you can show with, with real data that you're actually getting a higher volume of cases done during prime time, the proof is in the pudding. But this model gives us way more flexibility for what you're talking about for the trauma and the cancer. The last thing I'll say on that, I didn't have time to go into my presentation, but level one trauma center, you have to have a trauma room available at all times. Well, we used to say room one is the trauma room. Nobody can touch room one. Well, guess what? Room one had 1% utilization during prime time. Now we have a mobile trauma room. So it could be room one and then now it's room seven and now it's room eight. And now it's room 13, depending on what's going on. There always has to be a room open with a crew, with an anesthesia and nursing crew ready, but it doesn't have to be room one. Same thing for cancer. Great. Thank you. Molly, with regard to all the patents and the, the work that you're doing in the way of innovation, a lot of it in collaboration with many of the vendors, how do you get the input about where the need is, like what, the, what problems need to be solved and where to focus the energy around innovation? That's a great question. And I asked that question when I, when I came to Microsoft seven years ago. Specifically, my question was, what, what is the customer saying? Having worked in the medical device world in product marketing and, and development, I sat between the end users, the clinicians, biomeds, et cetera, and the software and hardware engineers. So I was able to be that feedback loop. I think at Microsoft, it's obviously a massive organization. And one of the things that we're working towards is getting the voice of the customer back into our research group, as well as our engineering group. Um, and that's something that my team has focused on through, um, we created an industry advisory council, as well as, quite frankly, just spending time with customers. I spent about four hours on Wednesday touring a cardiac intensive care unit, as well as their new telemedicine, where they're actually remotely monitoring these patients as a second opinion. And so I think that really is the most important to drive an innovation because, you know, I never want to bring in technology for the sake of technology because, I mean, I've, I worked in medical device. I've, you know, brought in and, and changed behaviors. And it is, Kevin, to your point, a culture shift and change. So I think really having the voice of the customer into Microsoft is so critical, as well as our partners. Here's a question, Kevin, for you. What happens when cases go over the planned OR time? Is open table a first come, first serve model? Does that penalize those less tech savvy? Well, the first point is surgeons never underestimate their OR time. They're always very accurate. So if they say the case is going to take two hours, it takes two hours or less. So again, like many ORs do now, when you want to book a case using open table, you put in the CPT code, in my case, 27130 and 27447 hip replacement, knee replacement. And it, it's based on my historical time. So I'm not allowed to lie about I can do it, I can do it in 45 minutes. And it includes the, the turnover time and setup and cleanup. Now, if we go beyond that, that's where then the nursing supervisor that day has to start pivoting and moving things around. So 
people get into unexpected problems, complications. This case is taking longer. Now with this system, we can move the case that was to follow me over into different rooms. So you're constantly shifting around and then you have to have the appropriate expertise and team. So again, so you're not doing a, you know, an orthopedic case in a neuro room and that sort of thing. So yeah, you have to have that level of flexibility, especially in a level one trauma center. I didn't quite understand the second part of the question. It's a first-come, first-served model. Do those that are not as tech-savvy get penalized? I, I'm assuming yeah. as, as it relates to entering in the yeah. cases. Yeah, so I, I would say I don't know any surgeons that are sitting there entering the cases. And, you know, it's, it's, our, it's our schedulers that do that. And I'm sure they've all figured out how to game the system, I'm sure, by now. You know, it's very low-tech, right? You know, you're, it's literally just open table. You click on it. I don't think anybody in this room can't use an open table app. So um, it's pretty simple. And just to follow up to that, just in terms of fitting things into the bin, it's like a puzzle. You want to fit in eight hours. And sometimes that eight hours means it's seven and a half hours or eight and a half hours. And who decides whether you can overbook a little bit? I know that's often a very much of a pain point in ORs. There's a usual tension pushback from the OR about surgeons overbooking and pushback from surgeons about wanting to overbook the hospital side of things is worried about overtime and the physician side of things. This is this is where their OR time estimates get adjusted. Yeah, I would say the case has to start. If you're booking an elective case, you have to book it to start during prime time. If it goes past prime time, so be it. But you can't book an elective case to start after prime time because then you're going to say, wake up in the morning and say, we're going to pay overtime today no matter what because we already know coming into the day that we've got elective surgery. You've got you to save that overtime for the unexpected cases, the trauma cases and other things that you didn't plan for at the beginning of the day. Okay. A couple of questions about anesthesia. How did you get anesthesia to participate and has it helped reduce the anesthesia turnover time? So the person who developed this, again, I can take no credit for it, was our chief of anesthesia, Tony Manuel. So it was his, his idea. I think the anesthesiologist's like it a lot or had zero resistance because for them, they're going to get more work done by three o'clock. And then, you know, the way most ORs work at three o'clock, they start letting two people go home and then one person go home and they hope that by seven o'clock, they're down to one or two teams. So anesthesia, the concept of block time is very frustrating for them because, you know, they're sitting around waiting for, they have an empty OR sitting around waiting for a surgeon to finish clinic or whatever that surgeon's doing while they're paying their nurse anesthetist, they're paying their anesthesiologist to be there. So I would say we got little or no uh, resistance um, from anesthesia. You know, we got a lot of resistance from surgery. And then another OR question, how do you get the right supplies to the correct OR suite? Mm, that sounds like a question for, uh, <laughs> for Molly. I'm not a supply chain person. You want to answer that one? <laughs> um, that is through uh, AI and real-time analytics. No. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I mean, we have, you know, it's a very manual process in our operating. We have case carts that like most ORs that are sitting in a staging room. And then depending on what room, you know, they're, they're not brought to room, my room, you know, I operate in room 10 a lot. They're not brought to room 10 in the morning. They're, they're kept in a staging area. And then if I'm moved around, they, they move from that staging area into whatever room I'm in. I'm sure there's higher tech ways of doing it. I know Cleveland Clinic uses some other type of technology to deliver it, but we do it manually. This is often, for whomever asked that question, a pain point in operating rooms, getting the right supplies, not just to the right room, but making sure you have the right supplies when you need them. I did run into a vendor out here who has an application for that basically as soon as the surgeon or the scheduler 
enters in what they need for the case, whatever tray that might be your equipment, it sends it to the vendor that's responsible for bringing it in. Often these supplies are brought in from the outside. The hospital doesn't have them. And through this app, you can check at all times where that tray is, if it's been sterilized, if it's complete, meaning if all the instruments are in this tray. It's a pretty slick app, so if you get a chance to check that out, it's outside. Yeah, and that's just... Internet of Things. Um, yeah. Right. yeah, and we have, you know, we have a, a central core, and this is, a, a again, a, a common problem in operating rooms is, especially when you move to this, this mobile OR concept, you know, historically, everything orthopedic had to be in the orthopedic room, so we had the shelf stock with all the orthopedic stuff, the saw blades and the, and the drills and everything else that we need. When you have this mobile concept, you have to have more stuff in the central core, but it has to be accessible fairly quickly, and then there's always the debate and the dilemma between how much is in the room, how much is in the central core, and how much is downstairs uh, in SPD, and you've got to work with your surgeon community to make sure that they're comfortable with you know, having the stuff that they need 80% of the time available in close proximity and 20% of the time they're going to be inconvenienced for a few minutes, but that's the best way to manage that inventory. Molly, the fifth directive says that AI should be transparent. How will Microsoft balance proprietary algorithms with transparency to providers and patients? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, Microsoft is a platform company, so we don't necessarily have any first-party solutions. They build on our platform. So we work with, for example, Javion and Kenzai that build algorithms and do the machine learning. And I don't know if that answers the question. I mean, because we, I mean, we are, have moved really towards an open, more open concept. I think when I, when Satya came on, for example, he allowed the Microsoft suite on the iPhone, et cetera. So we're moving towards a more open organization. But in terms of transparency, you know, we're working to help people understand how we build and develop. But the other thing around transparency that I didn't get to talk about today is really about inclusion and diversity into the folks that actually build the technology. I know that Gary was talking about historical bias, and I just think that uh, in general, bias within AI is a, is a real thing within technology and development. And we're working um, with initiatives to include a much more diverse group of individuals who actually code and build. How would someone go about partnering with Microsoft in the top of project you shared? There are so many different ways to partner with us. Um, you know, if you are interested, we can, I'm happy to talk with you. Typically, I like to have a specific project to work on, a proof of concept with the organization, both from a very measurable outcome. Um, for example, this organization that I was with on Wednesday, we did the tour. We heard about what, what their needs are. Our next step re really is to further ideate around their mission and vision around this, but then also understand what the technical architecture and infrastructure will look like to see if it's even possible. So that's how we start and then really build from there. We recently announced partnerships with Providence St. Joseph, and that's that really started from a small project we work with on in their call center. We announced with Humana as well as Novartis and just some other organizations, Walgreens, etc. Thank you. Kevin, what is the app that you're using for the scheduling, the open table app? So it was a 
literally anyone could go on the open table architecture and develop their own customized app so it, it literally says open table at the top and you can develop it from the open table architecture so it's it's open source we, ours is you know we don't make it available to everyone else because it has our OR schedule loaded, but anybody can do this. Probably you can get your 12-year-old daughter like mine to do it for you tonight if you want. It's pretty simple. I think that answers the next question, which most of these have been anonymous, but this is from Squirrel. Kevin, why don't you use you and Microsoft roll out the Open Table app to other hospitals? But I think you just said that anybody can use that. Yeah, I think that, again, I'm not a software person, but it's pretty simple stuff. And I had nothing to do with developing the software, but it's very simple. It's it's simple to use, even if you're not tech savvy. Could Squirrel raise their hand? I don't know who's Squirrel. <laughs> Great. Okay, that's what we have. And we know that we have a 12-year-old that's waiting for her dad. So <laughs> I think that's a wrap. Thank you, everybody. And thank, thank you, Molly. You. And thank yeah, you, Kevin. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast and that you heard something that will trigger your curiosity and advance your digital journey. Many of the examples we bring you are outside of orthopedics, but the technologies and solutions we present are all eminently translatable to musculoskeletal care please consider giving us a review on your podcast platform so other people can find us. More importantly, tell a friend about our amazing community. We look forward to sharing the next episode with you. I am your host, Stefan Urbini, founder and chair of both the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco and this, the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. <laughs>